This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we're discussing the career of the Candyman himself, Tony Todd. Andrew, run down his history. Tony Todd was born in Washington, D.C. in 1954. He studied at the University of Connecticut before moving to the Eugene O'Neill Actors Theatre Institute and the Trinity Repertory Company. His first film role was in Oliver Stoll's 1986 debut, Platoon. His first horror role and first lead came as Ben in Tom Savini's 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. Horror quickly became a playground for Todd in the 1990s as he was cast in Bernard Rose's 1992 film Candyman, an adaptation of Clive Barker's short story The Forbidden. Todd played the titular character, the Candyman. He would reprise the role twice more in that decade and again in 2021, nearly 30 years after first playing the role. He has had numerous roles in various Star Trek series and dozens of guest spots, such as the reality-altering Vietnam veteran Augustus D. Cole in the second season of The X-Files. Other film roles include Grange in The Crow, William Bloodworth in the Final Destination series, and Reverend Zombie in the Hatchet series. His distinctive voice has been used throughout the DC animated universe, as well as in the video game Layers of Fear 2. He will voice Venom in the upcoming Spider-Man 2 video game in 2023. Yeah, and it was your idea to cover Todd, and I was wondering, is there any particular reason you like him? I know you're a huge Candyman fan. Yeah, yeah, big fan of the first Candyman film. The second two, they have their charms. We can talk um, about it. We'll talk about that, Yeah. yeah. He's just so distinctive, you know? I think he's like um, one of the younger faces of the old guard of horror, if you get me. So yes. there's like, we covered plenty of horror films and horror actors in this show, but I kind of wanted to diversify, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I must admit, I was aware of Todd and had seen him in small parts over the years and had always appreciated him as having a unique presence. You know, he's like six foot five, he's handsome and imposing, but I hadn't really thought about his career as a whole, but Watching a bunch of his work in such a sh- short space of time, I-, I think he'd be hard pressed to find another actor working primarily in horror who just brings so much like charisma, emotion, depth, presence to his characters and people in some cases that might not have it on the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, so where do you want to start? Will we start with his most famous role? Or do you want to t- take it from his beginning? What do you want? What do you think? Uh, let's start from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. So uh, do you want to talk about Night Living Dead? Break yeah, down the sure. Plot? So, Tony Todd plays Ben, a capable, self-assured black man who is stuck in a house with several others surrounded by the living dead. I saw one of those things take 30 hits and keep on coming. The damn thing had to be dead, but it kept on coming. Till it took a hit in the head. That brought it down. The only way to stop him, you gotta, you gotta... Look, I don't know what's going on, but I sure as hell know that it ain't no prison break. It ain't no kind of chemical that I ever heard about can make a dead man walk. This is something that nobody has ever heard about and nobody's ever seen before. This is hell on earth. It's a remake of George A. Romero's uh, 1968 classic of the horror of the, the... beginning of modern of the, the modern zombie modern zombie movie as we know it and I quite like the original um, I liked this one too mostly because it felt so timeless I think yeah, yeah. and uh, also um, because it made um, Barbara who's uh, a bit of a bit of a coward in the first one understandably so you know I can't I can't I can't really judge I've never encountered a zombie in real life hopefully never will 
but I liked it because it made her more of an action hero in this one. It was, she was a much cooler character, I thought. And I did I enjoyed what they did with um, Ben as well. I mean, you know, that's the, kind of the famous thing about the first one is that he dies in that, and uh, he dies in this one as well, but uh, spoilers. Um, I mean, usually we don't spoil them so early into discussing <laughs> yes. them, but... Uh, Hey, listen. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's twenty. It's nearly thirty years old. It's over thirty years old. And that's it's a your remake of a movie. That's uh, yeah, exactly. Years yeah, old yeah. It's it's that. your own fault. Um, I think what was odd about it was that it's directed by Tom Savini, who's like you know known kind of boundary pusher, makeup artist, uh, special effects with director, actor, and gorehound, and it feels so restrained. Yeah. Yeah. What's tripping? It's a very underrated movie because you know obviously it's a remake of a very seminal horror movie, so I think people had their knives out for that. <laughs> but I was a bit taken back by the reviews of the time because I was reading like Roger Ebert's mm. review and they're talking about One it star. as if it's Gus Van Sant's yeah. like shot for shot remake of Psycho he said like the remake is so close to the original and there's no that there's no reason to see both mm. and I completely disagree with that and that, as you mentioned the character of Barbara has a lot more agency in this film for and one it's in colour it's in colour true <laughs> and the the ending plays out very differently, but is as or maybe even more nihilistic than the yeah, original yeah it was, it was very upsetting I and, think and um yeah, I think it's a pretty stellar remake in that like it takes the basic premise of the original movie but like subtly builds on its themes while updating the setting, mm. the way people talk, the pacing, the style of the movie, it's in colour as you mentioned, uh, for the modern day. And I while I don't think it has like the cinema verite kind of style of the original, which I think made it so startling at the time. I th- in that case, that was done out of necessity because it was, like, it cheaper and it became the aesthetic. But, uh, like, here Savini and Romero, like, have a bigger budget for actors, set pieces, the gore, and have honed their craft over the years. But what impressed me about this remake is not only does it look really handsome and the makeup of the zombies is, is incredible, it's quite, it is quite tasteful in its use of mm. violence. Uh, but, and I think it stays focused on that idea of the original, the inner crisis, you know, humans are the people you should be afraid yeah. of. And um, I feel like if, uh, if all Hollywood remakes had this much integrity and care put into them, um, the industry would be in a much better place. I agree. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's it's great. It's just great to see in a horror movie such an assured put upon character as Todd's Ben is keep their cool relatively. You know, he's he, I think he's a bit angrier than the other than the Dwayne Jones who played the original Ben. Um and keep a relative cool in a house full of idiots and belligerent assholes. And I think it, it, like it's it's a very timeless feeling movie as well because it harkens back to the uh, like designs of the like production design and aesthetics of that of that movie. It feels like it's like, like it's a 1990 movie, but may but set in 1968 or whenever or mm. any time somewhere where cell phones don't exist anyway. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think what impressed me about Todd's performance is how effective he was as an action hero, especially given that he's known mostly for playing villains. Yeah, and yeah. Like, when he shows up at Night of the Living Dead and he gets out of the car and he's in the suit with a cigarette hanging out of his mm. mouth and has a weapon in his hands and, you know, he, he's like, throughout the movie, he's like, you know, kicking, punching, yeah. tackling zombies yeah, at yeah. one point. And he looks great. And there must be some sort of alternate timeline where Todd doesn't become Candyman but gets his own sort of conventional I don't know Snake Plissken-esque <laughs> kind of character because like he has the looks for it because yeah. he's you know tall muscular handsome and um, he has that thing where when his character comes up with a plan you just automatically trust that it's right you're like yeah, yes yeah. I believe you, believe yeah. you uh, it's you're, everyone else that gets it wrong yeah exactly yeah, and that's why the plan fails but um, I think while he's bringing those things he also has a a lot of vulnerability like mm. he never forgets that like Ben is a human being who's been thrust into this insane situation beyond his control and his haunted by what he's seen and the just the, the relative short time he's been in the apocalypse and 
he doesn't enjoy the carnage ever like those awful people who show up at the end of the movie do like he's a good man he literally prays at one point after killing a zombie but he's just fighting to survive and I feel like even before Todd starts talking about you know what he's seen in the apocalypse you you understand thanks to his like big expressive eyes that always seem on the verge of tears or the way he plays Ben trying to like comfort a catonic from shock Barbara while also at the same time like pressuring her to snap out of it as zombies approach him from all the corners that like he's really scared yeah and Ben, I think, says at one point to Barbara, like, the fight will keep you strong, like, mm. keep you thinking straight. And I think Todd is playing the character as tired, running on fumes, yeah, but constantly moving because mm. he knows that if he stops to think about what's happening, he'll go mad. And one of the only few times he breaks down um, outside of the ending is in front of the fireplace during he and Barbara's kind of brief respite from the zombie attacks. And there's team tears streaming down his face and he's holding a big stick in his hand, mm. but it snaps because he's holding it so tightly. And like a lot of that monologue is explaining that the zombies are living dead, that they need to be shot in the head uh, to the audience and amping them up as a threat. Uh, and I think also kind of providing foreboding for how humans and society will turn on each other in a crisis. But um, I, th- I think because it, it, it aligns so closely with how Todd is playing the character that... You know, that he's having that outpouring once he's had this chance to process what's happened to him. Like, it never feels like exposition. Mm. It feels very natural. What, what do you think? This is hell on earth. Yeah. yeah it's that's, great. Yeah, no, it's it's really good. I think gi- give Todd the right role and he's like Willem Dafoe or Tony Lung or something, someone like that. He's like, it's like he can just hold a screen with his eyes and his face. You could turn the film on silent or not have any sound at all and... Once the camera is on Todd, you're you're in there. You're focused. You know, it's like it's what really holds up all those Candyman sequels that are like uh, he is groaning under the weight of holding up all that shit. Yeah, hundred yeah, <laughs> percent. Not that those movies aren't without their charms, but uh, we can get into that <laughs> later. Yeah. Any more Night Living Dead thoughts? No, no, no. It's just very blue film. Yeah. In both uh, t- tone and color. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. And yeah. Will we yeah, we move on to Candyman and yeah. Andrew, you've written yeah. about Candyman for Head Stuff. I'll put a link in the show notes yeah. to your wonderful article about it. But it's near and dear to your heart. It is. Would you like to break down the plot? Sure. Tony Todd plays Candyman, a ghost that haunts the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago. Helen Lyle uh was played by Virginia Madsen. Helen Lyle's disbelief in him calls Candyman back to kill again and to pin the blame on Helen. Do I know you? No. No. But you doubted me. I'm sorry, I have to go. No need to leave yet. When I'm late? You are not content with the stories. So I was obliged to come. Be my victim. My victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. I think Candyman is like easily one of the easily Far and away, Usain Bolt ahead. Easily one of the most elegant films of the 1990s. And it never feels like heavy-handed or overbearing in its themes or its scares. But it's never too subtle or coy either. And I think that's like a misstep that the that both of its sequels, all three of its sequels actually make the mistake, either on one side or the other. 
I think Tony Todd, you know, at his formidable height of six foot five and uh, with his deep growling voice is a huge part of this. You know, when the first time you hear him going, Helen, you're like, yeah. oh, shit, no, He's got like a, something's really gone wrong and here. And like a musical lilt in his voice, yeah. like, Helen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really good. <laughs> it's one of like the few films that you see that you can tell every single scent was squeezed in the production process, like Philip Glass doing the score, all the like the... The costuming for everyone, really, but especially for Tony Todd in that massive, like, fur lined coat, the herringbone trousers, and the wingtip shoes, and like, handsome face just poking out of like a little silk scarf. Yeah. And then that's just completely offset by this glistening, bloody red hook poking out where his right hand should be, and all the bees like crawling around his open rib cage. Like, th- this is obviously based on a Clive Barker short story, and a lot of his work is is about both, like, the meeting point and eventual kind of combination or perversion of, like, the sacred and the profane and all that. Like, you have, um, and I think Handyman, with, his, like, his soft-spoken elegance and, you know, ferocious brutality is, like, a perfect representation of this, uh, while the likes of, like, something like Hellraiser or, say, Nightbreed are Barker operating as a, at his most extreme. Candyman is more restrained and more successful for it. Uh, the issue of race is like a big thing in all four films. Um, it takes a weird uh, turn in the third one, but um, <laughs> it's um, it, I think it, it's it's at its best in this one, um, just because the second one feels a bit you know quite heavy handed, and the third one also feels very heavy heavy handed, but in a very uh, modern, almost preachy way. It's a film that positions um, Candyman as a tragic anti-hero who'll do anything and kill anyone uh, to regain his uh, congregation's faith in him. And later on, um, uh, Helen's love, because he believes that she's the reincarnation of um, uh, the woman, the white woman he got pregnant um, and was killed by her father and his goons because of what he did. Yeah. yeah. It also has the advantage of not having like the baggage of the sequels, which tend to over-explain and literalize a lot of Candyman's like subtler elements. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to bring that up. And I think it's just cool uh, thinking about the behind-the-scenes stuff because Tony Todd did an audition for this. He was like, it was like a personality test or something. Not a personality test, but like a, he had a meeting with Bernard Rose, essentially. And uh, obviously there's like, they do screen tests, but what Bernard Rose did was that he sent um, Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd on like dates together. Like they took ballroom dancing lessons. I think they went to dinner. I think they went to plays and stuff like that just to see like you know, just to develop this kind of um, relationship so that you're never like, oh, this he's a bad guy and she's like bad for like trying to exploit these people for her own personal academic and presumably financial gain. Poverty tourism. Par- yeah. yeah, poverty tourism. Yeah, yeah. I think what shows uh, in like the budget um, for this is like how Bernard Rose would have um, Virginia Manson lightly hypnotized in scenes she do with Todd. So like in the scenes where she's like, She's crying, uh, but her eyes are like half closed and she always looks um she's speaking in like a low monotone. She's hypnotized in those scenes mm. to make it uh, just like so you really feel like Candyman's like hypnotic, seductive power, even though this is a man that like spits bees. I wanted to bring that up because like you sort of mentioned it, but it, Candyman has like all the action and tension and violence and iconic moments that you want from like a canonical sort of mainstream horror. Mm. But, you know, yeah, at the same time, it's very artistic and ambitious. And I think perfectly blending those two aspects of the movie as well as the craft and as you mentioned Philip Glass's wonderful score is Tony Todd as the <laughs> candy man himself who like despite not having many scenes like he doesn't appear in the movie until like nearly halfway yeah, yeah. he just walks away with that and I, I tend to think in mainstream horror Sasha villains 
they tend to be either just sort of unhinged and frenzied, like you know Chucky or like the yeah, family in yeah. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even Norman Bates to an extent, although he's more complicated. But it's either that or they're Michael Myers or they're the demons in the Evil Dead. They're just like manifestations of evil. And Todd's Candyman is a bad guy who like brutally massacres people with a bloody hook hand, splitting them from groin to gullet, as he says, and kidnaps babies. And but he is more complicated and soulful than just that, partly because of this tragic backstory but also for the fact that like Todd is playing him like a Shakespearean anti-hero like mm, and I, yeah. I think sweets for the sweets and growing to gullet are both phrases from Shakespeare originate from Shakespeare mm. and uh, also Todd referred to the character as his kind of phantom of the opera and um, not wrong yeah because like he has such a tragic past he was born in the you know the 1800s as the son of a slave and grew up to be this well-known artist who who was sought after to paint portraits for of wealthy white people and you know, fell in love with this woman and was killed by mm. her father. And you know, it's implied that Candyman is the ghostly reminder of America's racist past and that the type of violence he dishes out was done to him and he also, you know, gains power the more people believe in him and his mm. story. Yeah. And um I think what's really fascinating about Todd is that he emphasizes as the ghostly candyman less the brutality of the character but more the erudite artistic passionate yeah, side of yeah, him yeah. he must have had when he was alive like he's the deep smooth voice the way he like elongates syllables or you know put a musical lilt into his voice and but oftentimes like his stillness is so alluring and hypnotic and it kind of turns what are awful descriptions of you know threats of what he's going to do to helen into something that sounds semi-enticing yeah. <laughs> I, I know that sounds crazy when yeah. i say it but like and now I must kill you. Your death will be a tale to frighten children to make lovers cling closer in the rapture, which I think you quoted in yeah. our last episode. Or the, the pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. Yeah. Come with me and be immortal. Or, or I feel these lines are very key to Candyman when he says to Helen, why do you want to live? If you had learned just a little from me, you would not beg to live. I am a rumor. It is a blessed condition, believe me, to be whispered about, whispered about on street corners, to live in other people's dreams but not have to be. And like, Candyman has the power it seems to put his victims in a trance, like you said, like kind of like Dracula. And just the way Todd purrs those lines is so sensual and weirdly tender that not only do you understand that power, you feel like he's doing it to you as the viewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's rare that the description honeyed words, uh, you you wouldn't use it in real life except for maybe that. But, um, That's me paraphrasing my own article. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great read. Um, Thank you. Just you want to talk about the sequels, which are basically Candyman stalking his descendants. Weird, weird, weird stuff. Obviously, he's stalking like uh, his descendants in Candyman: Day of the Dead and Candyman: Farewell to the Flesh. Reverse those. Candyman: Farewell to the Flesh is the the second second one, one yeah. and Day of the Dead is the third one. Yeah, and like they're his like granddaughters essentially, like great granddaughter and great great granddaughter. And it's like, what's with the incest theme? What's going on? Especially, it's yeah. especially in the third one. Like the second one yeah. is like second one's pretty restrained and sort of that, which is kind of a bummer in that because he's literally i know stalking his ancestors mm-hmm. or his descendants mm. he, he can't be very sensual yeah that's true <laughs> but yeah. then in the third one they're like no we need yeah, it to be sensual but it, then yeah. it's also creepy yeah yeah um it's strange in terms of can farewell to the flash can too um when it began i was like oh this is decent because it, yeah it's an early movie from bill condon a, mm. pr- a pretty well respected now hollywood director he's not some schmo <laughs> um he knows where to put the camera philip gas back doing the score my boy set in new orleans and looks nice mm. cast is decent nice scene veronica cartwright from alien in it as yeah the mother. it's true however like even if it's well made and like acted it's it's quite a bit dull isn't it yeah never really picks up and it, yeah. and it has that has a mystery quest that's really really obvious yeah yeah 
And um, dropping the urban setting and the exploration of storytelling was a mistake because I think the movie replaces it with more typical horror lore, which doesn't really work for the character of Candyman because I think the sequel does Todd a bit dirty by making Candyman something to be vanquished. Like there's this whole thing about his power lying in a mirror and having to break it. And what I love about the original and the, and, uh, the reboot as well, the one that came out this year, mm. is that like Candyman is lingering trauma. Right? Yeah, he's like a ghost yeah. reminder of the past. He's not something to be just like disposed of. Like that's too easy yeah. for such a complicated character. And I think while Todd is doing... Yeah, well, I break a mirror and he's gone. Yeah, and he just shatters. Yeah. And um, I think while Todd is doing the same thing again, I think there's less opportunity for him as Candyman to be seductive and tender because the movie wants to destroy him yeah. as well. And we do get to see, you know, him as Daniel Robitaille, which he, his character mm. when he was alive and how he died. And it's appropriate traumatic. But again, even though Todd's bringing him for that scene, it, it's kind of literal. It's overkill. Yeah, yeah. Because... Before we knew that through characters just telling stories and every time it happened, there might be a little detail that would be changed, such as the nature of storytelling. So actually seeing it happen, you lose some of the magic. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. When I think about the two sequels is that there's a lot of repetition, you know, and it's not like uh, Candyman isn't like he's not like Jason or Michael Myers. You know, he's um, he's loquacious. He uh, says a lot of words, at least more than Michael Myers does. You know, he has monologues. He has iconic lines. Um, not in the sense that in that Chucky has iconic lines where he's like swearing and you know shouting he's like you know cultured yeah what I appreciated the most about the newest uh, Candyman was how they changed the you know they will shed, say I have shed innocent blood See, uh, monologue the, he, he, but he's he's not saying it to like a woman or one of his descendants he's saying it to like a police officer who's like looking to pin the blame on uh on someone at the end of the movie, and he's like, yeah. will say, but this isn't Tony blood. Todd as Candyman. That's sure. true. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's 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 odd because it, it feel it could be a combination of their voices, or it could just be. Um, I was wondering this. Yeah, yeah uh, or it could he, just be. He really is only in the movie for one still. Yeah, <laughs> li- it's literally a second, and it looks like they've like. CGI de-aged him or whatever yeah, yeah which uh, you know what's fine yeah. well he's like he isn't a ghost he has a ghost and Tony Todd has uh, you know it's been 30 years he has understandably aged yeah. since the first Candyman and like a ghost is timeless I guess but uh, doesn't matter I didn't like that movie that much anyway <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I actually not over the reboot but as, as compared to like 2 and 3 I weirdly preferred the third Candyman movie Candyman Day of the Dead which moves the action to LA and everyone seems to hate it including Tony Todd himself yeah but it, it, and it went to straight to DVD and it is very cheaply made you know Phil Glass was not returning no, for this one no. the only real star in the movie is Todd Phil Glass was out on his ass <laughs> but it, it, it's it's not good by any means, but it's a bit more trashy and energetic with like a lot of vi- sex and violence. <laughs> I one... thought the pacing was worse on this one. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I yeah. thought the pacing was worse than the second one. It was like yeah. this movie feels like it's three hours long. <laughs> I think one. I like what I like about the second one is the New Orleans setting, um, and that you know helped maintain my interest. Where in LA, it's like oh. I've seen everywhere here, you know? I suppose. I just, I feel like it didn't really capitalize on the New Orleans because Candyman doesn't really have any connection to New Orleans. Do you want to be on a Dixieland booze cruise? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. The whole movie is narrated by like some guy on the radio who's like... Yeah, that's that's that, that's also true. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Yeah, but I thought the third one has one really genuinely creepy scene involving an egg yolk. You know, the same yeah, I, 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 I did quite enjoy like that. that. That's yeah. in my notes. Yeah, I actually stopped taking notes. My last note uh, is about seventy minutes into the film, where, and it just says, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it makes some really odd decisions. I think, like, 
you know, all respect to our Latinx brothers and sisters out there, but what what does Candyman have to do with the, you know, the Mexican-American community in eastern Los Angeles? Well, I feel they, they locked into this thing where they made the second one and moved it to our New Orleans, and they were like, well, just guess we'll move it to another subculture. Yeah, I but guess, yeah. It, 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 it doesn't really make that much sense. I guess it's because Candyman is dead, and then there is a Day of the Dead festival, and a lot of Mexicans in L.A., but it's still... A leap. Yeah. But I think it, again, suffers from kind of making Candyman something to vanquish. But I think he, Todd, at least is given a bit more space here to be that kind of unique blend of seductive and threatening, which I yeah. like. There's a scene um, where the lead actress who <laughs> was a Playboy model and was in Baywatch, her character's having sex with her boyfriend. And, you know, he ducks down for a bit. But when it, when a head pops back up, it's yeah. Candyman. Yeah, yeah. And he says in that divine voice of his, you won't know true ecstasy until you have tasted death. So it's not without its pleasures. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Awesome. I, I knew I'd seen her somewhere before. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, were you struck by the third, just straight to DVD Candyman movie, the third one? Mm. Has, shares a lot of DNA with the reboot. Does it? In that plot's kicked off by a gallery showing of Candyman related art. That's true, yeah. Features racist cops being murdered in a car by Candyman. Yeah. People who worship Candyman and want to summon him. Yeah. Yeah, the cyber, the goths gang, they're weird. That was cool. That's so odd. Yeah, yeah, that was a good decision, I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, I just think it's coincidental, but the re- the reboot made by Nia DaCosta, I think, synthesizes all those elements in a better way mm. with better actors and lots more money. But I'd be curious to just ask her if she, did, did you watch the third yeah. one? <laughs> I'm sure she did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, so odd because like there's a uh, there's the bit where like the racist the racist cop's partner is killed the fellow with the guy with the mustache in the car yeah yeah good scene yeah there are two other cops on the side who you barely see and I think it would be a lot more interesting if they were kind of you know the main fixtures uh, uh, in the as the cops you know the guy who's Ernie Hudson's son yes yes and the yeah. uh, Latina woman yeah yeah and there's a bit where the Latina uh, female cop says somehow this chick gets out of the cuffs and rips this guy who's twice her size to shreds gives a whole new meaning to PMS and I was like this is a line that would have been said in <laughs> yeah, NYPD no, Blue by awful. like a 60 year old man why give it to the Latina woman you know yeah, yeah. and what's weird is, is that this movie is set in 2020 yeah, yeah. They, they never and, it, it and yet it feels very 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 2000s like it feels like it's July 2000 because they, they're locked into this idea that like oh it has to be the daughter of yeah. the character in the second movie even though it ignores a lot of the second movie's continuity mm. but they're like well she would be 20 years older so it has to be set in 2020 yeah. <laughs> but no one's on like yeah. I don't know um, an iPhone or yeah, that's true yeah, <laughs> it's a weird yeah. decision and then also that's another similar to the Candyman because the Candyman that just came out is set in 2020 <gasps> <laughs> my god <laughs> but uh, will we talk about that because uh, I, I liked the the new one with yeah. some caveats yeah yeah, um, I would agree yeah yeah thought it was very well acted looks gorgeous I found it nicely creepy mm-hmm. I also thought making it more overtly about the struggles about what black people face in America having a predominantly black class, being a bit more explicit in its social commentary, and then also delving deeper into what Candyman represents for black people, this idea that there are multiple Candyman, other people who've been killed by white people for no reason mm, yeah. over time, was a very interesting move for the franchise. But I thought it was a very busy movie. Yeah, yeah, I think it needed a lot more, a bit more time to yeah. work things out. And I, I, it, it's trying to be like a character study for Yaya Abdul-Mateen's character. Yeah. Uh, it's about gentrification, it's about art, it's about... It's having to tie up all these loose ends from the original. Mm. And I think there's a point where the movie buckles under the weight of all that. I liked its kind of sort of twist ending in concept, but I thought the execution was very rushed. Yeah, I did it too. Yeah, like the the whole reveal of um, this ca- character we've seen consistently who does, who does, gives, is very good at exposition. He's an amazing actor. Yeah, Coman, Coman Domingo. Domingo yeah. yeah. 
does some really good monologue work as well. Um, I think that's really, really rushed. Like, we only ever see him in, um, you know, in those exposition scenes until the end where he's sawing off an arm and sticking a hook yeah, in the socket. It's that thing I hate in horror movies where the character is like, I'm a very normal man. I go about my day. I'm very restrained. And mm. then at the end, he's revealed to be crazy. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, how would you ever function yeah, on yeah, a day to day basis? Yeah. You know, you know, as we mentioned, Todd appears very briefly in the new Candyman. And, you know, the movie essentially closes with a shot of him. Yeah. And, just goes to show how impactful he was in the original that the reveal of him in the reboot is like Carrie Fisher showing up at the end of Rogue One. <laughs> You're almost like, well, I got my money's worth. Yeah, yeah. Cinema's back. <laughs> you know? it's, it's wild. Yeah, I think yeah. we broke it all down. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 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 Uh, good franchise overall. I would, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Spice Bags is a podcast about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Hi, I'm May. I'm an American food writer, and I'm with my friends Blanca, a chef from Spain, and Dee, an Irish food editrix. And we are the Spice Bags, three sassy ladies with a lot to dish up. Join us for the chats. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. What do you want to do? I can talk about The Crow. Yeah, talk about The Crow. crow. I haven't seen The Crow in ages. Do you like The Crow? I like The Crow, yeah. yeah. I like, well, I, I've reread the graphic novel like last year or the year Ooh. before. Yeah. Talking to an expert. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I haven't seen the film in years. Right. And I only saw it once, so I barely remember Tony Todd in it. I think this movie is a masterpiece. Really? I, okay. I knew yeah. I, I, must, lo- I knew I liked visited. it as a yeah. teenager, yeah. but watching it again, I was like, "This movie honks." Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's based on a comic book. Um, it's it's a superhero movie, but went that with heavy revenge thriller and horror elements. Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, stars in the film and tragically passed away mm. during the making of it due to an onset accident, which made the movie infamous upon its release. And makes watching it today still feel haunting because not only is he so good in it, but he looks so young, full of life and energetic and a bit like River Phoenix, who we mm. talked about in our last episode. It's another great talent that was yeah. cut short. So watching it does leave you feeling sort of melancholic about that. But he plays Eric Draven, a rock musician. He and his fiance are murdered by a gang. But a year later, after his death, he's resurrected from the dead by a crow and becomes an avenging angel launching a war against <laughs> he and his lover's killers. Yeah, I really dig it because on one level, it's this straightforward, really well done action vengeance show with, you know, gothic horror elements but on another level it's like Mandy or that French movie Revenge mm, that we yeah, both love yeah. in that 
it takes place in this extremely heightened nightmarish version of our reality which is never really explained it's just texture it's yeah. set in detroit but it's always raining and i know detroit gets a bad rap yeah. but here it's like on the edge of yeah. lawlessness <laughs> like everyone is either a cop or a criminal except eric um there seems to have been some sort of mass moral decline mm. And yeah. I think that imaginative world, which was probably inspired by the comic, um, I haven't read it, I must admit, gives the filmmakers a lot of room to experiment and try new things. And yeah. The Crow is directed by Alex Proyas, who made another masterpiece in my eyes, Dark City, um, as well as movies like iRobot and Knowing. Mm. And just nearly every image, camera angle, scene transition, performance, character in The Crow is eye-catching. Yeah. That it makes the movie feel just really punchy and well-paced. And even the flashback scenes to Eric and his girlfriend, Shelley Happy, which are the stuff that you need to have in revenge movies but can be kind of rote. They're presented here in these like brief, kaleidoscopic, Eisensteinian montages that look amazing and are just sprinkled throughout the movie in just the right spots. Yeah. Before we get Todd, I just want to shout out, Lee manages to be at times really physical com- physically commanding and scary is this personification of death and vengeance while in other moments are in flashbacks feel feeling really sweet and tender on top of that he's playing a rock musician and his character and performance has that sort of charismatic showman thing where he literally will don face paint before terrorizing the gang or will quote Edgar Allan Poe to them before he kills them like I heard a crow tapping on my window <laughs> he's doing all the, the theatrical stuff and uh, I also want to shout out the dude Michael Wincott who do you know Michael Wincott? Are you familiar with him? I know the name. I'm not sure I know the face. Incredible actor Weirdly who enough. we will 100% cover on the show one day. I thought he had retired from acting because his last known credit was the Ghost in the Shell remake, uncredited appearance. Oh, wow. He is going to be in Jordan Peele's Nope. Oh, wow. So maybe around the release of that we could do him. But he was like a big star in the 90s. He's one of the villains in Stranger Days, the Catherine Bigelow movie. He was in a lot of Oliver Stone movies, like talk radio, mm. stuff like that. In The Crow, he plays Top Dollar, one of the most entertaining villains of all time who speaks in a deep raspy accent someone online said it's, his voice sounds like burning wood <laughs> so him and tony todd having kind of a voice off yeah. in the movie. um he also is in an incestuous relationship with his half-sister who engages in supernatural rituals with he has the incredible long mane of hair dresses like a vampire literally at one point is like greed is for amateurs disorder chaos anarchy now that's fun uh <laughs> completely unpredictable you never know what he's gonna do and t- tony todd plays top dollars little henchman grange who is in the movie a lot but is a, is a relatively muted character compared to the likes of wincott or the movie's other chaotic bad guys like david patrick kelly from twin peaks um what literally at one point one of top dollars henchmen is like let me tell you about murder it's fun it's easy <laughs> <laughs> In comparison, Grange is a lot more internal and composed, like he rarely gives any emotion away, but you can tell he's always thinking and that he's intelligent, but also that he's kind of quietly commanding. Just his stature and the few brief words he might utter is enough to let people know, do not mess with this yeah, guy. Yeah. And um, it's it's hard to give a loyal henchman who doesn't have much of a personality gravitas, but I think Todd manages to do that. And um, I think he plays two important roles in the film because he helps make the gang feel like one that could actually be capable of controlling a city because well you get a sense that like Wincott's top down was once a more typical mob boss but has become kind of power mad and decadent mm. meanwhile aside from Todd's Grange the people who work for him are like the bad guys in Robocop they're just madmen who <laughs> literally at one point swallow bullets with shots of liquor in their spare time <laughs> So it helps to have a character like Todd's Grange there to be like, this is a criminal operation. Like, they own property. Yeah, <laughs> they collect yeah. debts, you know? <laughs> In keeping with that, I feel like Top Dollar only gives the theory credence that the person who is attacking them is supernatural because Grange verifies it as opposed to one of the gangs like Bloodthirsty, Mentally Unhinged, like hopped up <laughs> dramatics. Yeah, yeah. And Grange, Grange um, says like, oh, he winked at me and jumped out a four-story window like he had wings. And Top Dollar replies, he winked at you. 
musicians. <laughs> Amazing. <line. laughs> and uh, like Todd's role is very minor and it, and it would have been nice to see Todd's character get a bit more of an arc because there's a part where it seems like he gives a disapproving look after Top Dollar murders someone in a particularly gruesome manner, stabs him with a katana and then shoots him with a machine gun. And I would have liked to have seen that kind of followed up on mm. more. But um, he gets one or two good lines after that killing I mentioned. He's like, I'll have the janitor. Come on up. <laughs> and he, he gets one pretty good campy moment where the bad guys realize that the crow that follows Eric around is what gives him his power of immortality. And if they kill the crow, Eric will be vulnerable. And at one point, Todd's Grange has the bird cornered and is about to shoot it. And he grumbles, bye bye birdie. Which is great. Awesome movie. One of my favorites we've covered on the pod. Oh, that's good. I knew it had like cult status, but I didn't realize that it extended that far to yourself. Oh, big fan. Yeah, I just never, never, I would never have put you and that movie together for some reason, for whatever reason. Yeah, I should take a look at it again. October's coming up yeah yeah uh, do you want to hit the x-files sure yeah this is the second season of the x-files where the x-files have been disbanded so to speak scully is teaching us the quantico fbi academy in virginia and Mulder is in the offices just on regular grunt work um and uh, one of the cases he gets is called sleepless and tony todd plays augustus d cole one of only two survivors of a marine recon unit massacred in vietnam in 1970 Mulder and new partner Alex Krychek, played by Nicholas Lee, are assigned to investigate the case of Cole and his fellow Marines. Basically, while they were training, this 13-man squad were experimented on and part of their brainstem was removed so they could function without sleep, which would make them dull to fear and they'd have heightened aggression. And apparently they killed over 4,000 people in Vietnam. (laughs) (laughs) Starting with, you know, regular soldiers and moving their way down, I suppose, to women and children. Um... Boo. Yeah. Don't do it. No, no, no. Bad idea. Uh, morally morally wrong. I would encourage all our listeners not to murder children. Uh, can't believe I had to put that on air, but yeah, this is the, these are the times we live in, Stephen. Uh, yeah, so he's a PTSD-afflicted veteran who believes that he and his squad must atone for the crimes they committed in Vietnam. And um, he can essentially externalize his dreams and effectively alter reality. So um, his conscious and his unconscious are connected so he can take images from his uh, unconscious mind and project them into reality so he'll like project um his uh, vietnamese victims and get them to shoot um uh, his old squad mates or whatever or um he'll get um his old squad mates to come back and like murder uh the surgeon that performed the surgery on them with scalpels um but no wounds will appear on them they'll they'll be internal but they won't be external cool that's really yeah. cool <laughs> um, yeah. right now yeah like it's it's no beyond the sea but it's still pretty damn good yeah every time he shows up there's like this um sort of east asian flute cue it's really cool <laughs> and um uh yeah and like in fairness he doesn't he has a lot of great lines but they're all just quotes from the old testament and um yeah it's weird that two of his like iconic roles in the 90s are predicated on like a willingness to believe because Mulder believes that he can externalize reality and like the climax is like Cole is like on top of this under construction building and Mulder's like trying to talk him down from the ledge and he's holding out a Bible to Mulder. But Alex Krychek sees it as a gun and shoots him, whereas Mulder is like, no, I know what he's trying to do. So, yeah, it's just one of those kind of tragic monsters of the week. Unfortunately, another one, another one, another but, one to chalk up. But Todd makes it better. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's good. He's like a you understand you. Not that you understand why he's, you know, killing people in this horrible way, but you're going to understand why, like, 
having part of your brain cut out and then uh, being forced to participate in a, basically this year long 4,000 person massacre uh, would um, alter your perception of reality uh, to bring people essentially back from the dead to murder those you have deemed have done you wrong right yeah and I imagine because the X-Files writers are smart people and like they're sort of in jokes that mm. it might be he was cast because P- Platoon was his first role maybe could have been yeah yeah, uh, which is yeah, kind of yeah. nice Doesn't surprise me, I yeah, like that yeah. when that happens what I do one thing I will just go back to Night of the Living Dead briefly the opening shot of him stepping out of the truck and you just see the hook, hook. of the yes. crowbar uh, coming down in his right it's like two years before Candyman I know Yeah. do you think they were like uh, he looked good with the hook there yeah yeah. yeah. gotta write smart not hard <laughs> um, we'll, we t- we'll move on to Final Destination because sure. I, I think that's a perfect bridge I think, is it our final destination? I believe it is the last thing we'll talk about. <laughs> but Final Destination developed as a concept for an X-Files episode before yes, being yeah, yeah. expanded on. Because And I get why they expanded on, because mm. it's a great premise. But yeah. do you want to break down the plot? Sure. Alex Browning, played by Devin Sauer, better known as Stan, boards a plane uh, to France with his, school, with his classmates. Uh, and they're about to leave when he suddenly has a vision of the plane exploding in midair. So he panics and starts a fight with uh, a fellow passenger a fellow classmate even and uh, they're kicked off the plane including w- with along with them one of their teachers um, Stifler from American Pie and uh, a couple of other classmates and then watching from the window the plane explodes in midair and they have thus avoided death but death isn't finished with them death is coming after them in increasingly weird and bizarre and cruel ways mm. and um, Tony Todd has essentially a cameo as William Bloodworth a mortician and seemingly the only character um, aware of death's nefarious plans for Alex and his friends what are all those tiny marks cuticle lacerations from pulling at the wire pulling at the wire hmm? if he was pulling at the wire he wasn't trying to kill himself it was an accident in death there are no accidents, no coincidences, no mishaps, and no escapes. What you have to realize is that we're all just a mouse that a cat has by the tail. Every single move we make, from the mundane to the monumental, the red light that we stop at or run, the people we have sex with or won't with us, the airplanes that we ride or walk out of, it's all part of death's sadistic design leading to the grave. And he has, you know, he has the great, that great monologue that uh, is like, beware the risk of cheating the plan. Disrespecting the design could initiate a horrifying fury that would terrorize even the Grim Reaper. And you don't even want to fuck with that Mac Daddy. Yeah, it's pretty good. good. Yeah. The logic of his character and how they react to them, though, we, we really need to break down because yeah. it's insanity. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird scene when you think about it because... It is very odd, yeah. After the death of one of their friends is believed to be suicide, mm. um, the main character has a premonition it was not and that death is out to get them. So they break into the mortuary to look at their friend's body to try and determine what happened and there they meet Todd's character. And right away, he's odd. He appears out of nowhere from a hallway, which looks like a cave. (laughs) He appears to be the coroner, and he's kind of flippantly messing with the dead body of these two teens' friend in front of them while laying out all these philosophical musings about death with such menace and intensity. Mm. And at first, you're like, okay, he's a coroner. He probably thinks about death a lot. Yeah. Um, And even though he says he knows Sawa's character in a way that suggests that he knows him very personally, he's like, I know who you are. You're like, he he probably read the news. (laughs) you know (laughs) that's all it is when then he basically starts explaining the plot for the movie to Mm. come you know like by walking off the plane you cheated death you have to figure out when it's coming back to get you but beware the risk of cheating the plan he's saying all this stuff and the characters never ask him like 
I don't know. I feel like the movie should make have made a choice of either the teens reacting to me like, okay, that was weird, mm-hmm. or like, how do you know these things? Instead, they just sort of listen and don't say anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At the end, yeah, at the end, they're like, oh, sorry for breaking in. And he's like, it's fine, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, I'll be seeing you. And then he just never you. shows up again. Yeah. He's like, I'll be seeing you, never shows up again. Yeah. Very unusual. Well, I mean, he shows up in two and five, but that's true. That, yeah. But I get why the movie takes the short because it wants it to be propulsive, you know, keep the pace chugging, but it's mm. quite a reach. And I think the filmmakers knew that. And hired Todd because he can make even the most rote dialogue sound impressively eerie yeah. in that deep voice and in that slow manner of talking he does so well. And he's also nicely theatrical in that scene. Like he's moving around a lot. He's got a yeah. lot of business going on with his hands and with the, the various implements that yeah. one would find in a uh, mortuary. And in the moment it works because you're almost focused less on what he's saying than the enigma of who mm. this man is. Like, is he supernatural or not? Mm. Is he a coroner? Is he death himself? <laughs> Does he work for death? Why yeah. would he know all this stuff? In the moment, it's really good. I think after the movie, I did start to question the yeah, logistics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah. think it's just as a, as the cut that of the neon sign about to hit your man and then credits roll at the end of the movie. I was like, I don't know. It's like you're on some kind of drug or something and the come down is instant the credits rolling like Jesus that was shite (laughs) (laughs) what I do think is odd though is that like um, like it's essentially a cameo and it's kind of like the kind of eerie presence and exactly the kind of cameo you want to see from someone like Tony Todd and it's it's, you know it's like seeing Kane Hodder who played like Jason in like four or five of the movies or Barbara Crampton show up and yeah horror has so many elder statesmen and women and that people more so that people just make movies based around name recognition like we covered the butterfly room for barbara Steele last year with katie yeah. and that movie is just stacked with full of horror actors um like you know there's the totally girl from uh, halloween or there's uh, ray wise uh, yeah, yeah. from twin peaks and stuff like that and there's then there's like a movie like the death house which tony todd and barbara crampton and kane hodder are all in as well as other various people that you know the star of chopping mall or whatever is in and it's like and Tony Todd is one of the few of these people who have never been in an 80s horror movie weirdly enough and uh, mm. and like maybe I'm wrong but no other genres other than like comedy do this you know I think like you wouldn't in, in a drama you wouldn't have like oh look it's uh, Max von Sydow it's here. Max von Sydow yeah <laughs> he's in the seventh seal yeah yeah we love that it's just constant like referential referencing just snake eating its own tail thing I suppose horror is a real sort of genre because I, I never quite gets a, a proper shake from critics mm. unless it's like an elevated horror and I think it's a real genre for fans the, yeah that's and, true and people yeah. who make horror movies truly love them yeah yeah that's true yeah, yeah yeah so I think that must be it just on him though here like I think we talked about Donald Pleasance mm. in Halloween last year in that like a lot of why we consider Michael Myers so evil and scary is just because Pleasance makes those also wild if not as crazy mm. monologues describing him you know the black eyes the, the devil's, devil's eyes he like sing you know like yeah, he makes yeah. them good I think Todd does you know similar strong work here turning the, one of the movies you know possibly worse scenes into one of its better ones through sheer presence alone <laughs> and like yeah he's only one scene I know he appears throughout the franchise but you know one scene here and I, I, despite that nominal screen time is one of the most popular characters in the series yeah and yeah Further example, the impression he makes. Yeah. Overall, where, where did you rest on Fan Destination? I thought it was fun. I quite liked the first 20 minutes. Yeah, I thought it was fun. Um, I th- Like, it's it's one of these horror movies that's like, it's like Saw or Hostel or something, you know, you're coming for the kills or whatever. Uh, and the rest is, all is you know, filler, essentially. But yeah, I thought it was fun, I guess. Like, it's just so weird just seeing like, oh, this puddle of water is moving. All of a sudden, in ways that it shouldn't. And then it doesn't do that again. Everything else seems kind of accidental. Yeah, that's actually true. You're right. It's strange. Yeah. 
I like the bit because the only bit I remember of Final Destination from when I first saw it I, f- I watched a 20 minute block of it I think from when your man strang- essentially strangles himself in the shower because he's spilled shower gel in the bathtub yeah. and gets the cord wrapped around his neck up to the point where she's like um the like jock's girlfriend or whatever is like, oh, I'm I'm not gonna not gonna sit here waiting to die and steps back in the road and a bus hits her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was um, I thought that, that twenty minute block was fun, but seeing the whole thing together, I was like, well, oh, this is fun, but I'm not. Uh, I don't think I'll ever see this again, though. Yeah, it, the Rude Goldberg deaths are why you watch it. Well, yeah. Anytime the movie actually tries to like seriously interrogate how these teens must be feeling, I think the performers are pretty good, but I was a little bit like, I'm not here for this. Yeah, Give me the happy yeah. death day stuff. Yeah. Give me the fun. Give me more Stifler. <laughs> Sean William Scott, underused here. Yeah, yeah. An actor I quite enjoy. <laughs> but um, no, and I thought that first 20 minutes before anything even bad happens is really impressive just the, the mood it conjures where you mm. just feel like every something bad's going to happen like the John Denver song the guy in the airport who's like death is not the end <laughs> or um, the thing with the, all the numbers and the ominous ominous close-ups on parts of the plane um, all felt very cool mm. I don't know and kind of like ooh it's something like weird is yeah, happening yeah. going on it just all feels preordained yeah. um, which I like yeah I think it's a good movie I would be curious to watch more of the franchise yeah any other movies you want to talk about or is that at all uh, no that's all I've got yeah, I looked at his IMDb. There's like 15 movies that he's going to be in, <laughs> yeah. in and video games yeah, and stuff. Yeah. He's con- still working, constantly working. I would love to see him get sort of a plum role again. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I would lo- love to see him just uh, come back for something. God knows what, but something. Yeah. yeah. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email iknowthefacepod at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Charlene Fernandez. Hey, hey, she's watching booth. us as we record yeah. uh, for helping out of running our socials. Um, if you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can find me at the Headstuff Film section and show.e. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.